Hello, I'm Marcus Railton, and this is the Scots Care Podcast. Scots Care is the only charity dedicated to helping disadvantaged Scots in London through a range of support, including mental health therapy, financial grants, advocacy, sheltered housing for older Scots, job coaching, social events, befriending, and support for children and families. The charity has been running for 400 years to help break the cycle of poverty experienced by some Scots in London. In this series of the Scots Care podcast, I'll be chatting to celebrities and supporters of the charity that have forged a life often away from Scotland and about the ups and downs that can bring. On the podcast today is best-selling crime writer Christopher Brookmeyer. Chris created the Jack Parlebane character who features in many of his novels. He also writes under the pseudonym Ambrose Parry alongside his wife, Dr Marissa Heitzman. Add to this a handful of sci-fi novels, TV and video game credits and it's no surprise that Christopher Brookmeyer has sold over 2 million books. It's an absolute pleasure to have him on the Scots Care podcast today. Scots Care. Helping to break the cycle of deprivation for Scots in London. Hi Chris. Hi, hi. Have you been writing today? No, I haven't, um, because Marissa and I just finished the new Ambrose Parry, the first draft, last week. Um, we sent that in on Friday, so um, no, <laughs> it's one of, the first, one of the first times in I don't know how many months when I can actually say I haven't been writing. When you're not in the, at the point where you're finishing a first draft, do you write every single day, no matter how you feel? I probably do. Uh, not every day, uh, you know, in terms of every day of the week, but most of the um, working week, uh, I'll go out walking and that's kind of how I write. Uh, I'll think up ideas or I'll dictate to myself and then when I get back to the house, I, I transcribe that. Um, and if it's, if it's going, if, it, if the ideas are flowing, I'll keep at it whatever day of the week it is. But I do find that it goes beyond about sometimes about seven days, eight days, and yet I haven't had a break. It starts to grind a wee bit, you know, and uh, you take a wee break and it all starts to flow a bit better. So I don't think um, it's rewarding to try and write absolutely every day. Yeah, It's interesting that you said um, if it's flowing, you keep going. And it made me think I took the kids to Raoul Dahl's house recently. It's it's mm. not that far from where I, where I live. And he, there's this great video of him talking about how he writes. And he, he was saying that if he's in a really good bit, he'll actually stop because mm. the next day it's far easier. It was far easier for him to get started again at that point. Yeah, I can, I can see the point of that, you know, to pick it up. Uh, it probably makes you feel good if you can kind of pick up the pace again. Um, but I think part of me is always thinking, well, if, if this is going well, I want to nail it. Yeah, um, I mean, sometimes if, if I've been out a long walk and I've got a whole load of material, um, I'll feel quite happy if I know that that's what I'll, I'll work on the next day. Uh, and sometimes if, if I've developed it part of the, the way along the process, uh, it's helpful to not try and write that evening. And sometimes the, 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 the ideas will be more developed if you wait. Yeah, I, to- I totally get what you mean by that. Almost kind of sleep on them and they kind of ruminate in your head a bit, don't they? Yeah, yeah. Do you have a particular setup? Because when we when we went to see Raoul Dahl's house, the kids couldn't believe that he could have worked in this, this awful shed with this ratty armchair. And he had this board, Chris, that he kind of jammed across the, the arms of the armchair. 
Mm. And he obviously he wrote longhand, and that's mm. that's what worked for him. But do you can you write anywhere, or do you have to have a, a have it set up just so? I kind of in in I was going to say recent memory, but going back quite so many many years, I've I've got to the stage where I can kind of write anywhere, in as much as. I'm often what I have to be able to do is walk. So it doesn't matter where I'm walking, I can write. Uh, and if I'm if I'm working on stuff that I've already uh, mapped out, then it doesn't matter where I am with my laptop. I mean, when I years ago when my son was young, uh, I remember writing in soft play areas, you know, with like deafening yeah. noise. Uh, I, I mean, I would sometimes wear noise cancelled headphones, but there's only so much they can do when you know there's like 200 kids screaming at each other. But if, if the idea is focused in my head, I can I can write. But obviously, I, I prefer um, my own space, and also I prefer my, my own computer and monitor uh, to the laptop. For some reason, I like um, having more kind of real estate on the on the screen. Yeah, but that's that's just ideal. I mean, if I'm if I'm on the road um, promoting or something, I, I can work away quite happily in a hotel room. As long as I can go for a walk, that's that's always the the absolute deal breaker for me. So when you sit down at the at the beginning of a story, do you know how it's going to end? Do you plot everything out? Well, it's hard to say what the beginning constitutes. You know, um, I mean, if you're talking about when I'm writing page one, uh, I usually know how roughly how it's going to end or yeah. what what is going to be revealed. But sometimes, the, if you say the beginning of a story, sometimes the beginning of a story is a far more nebulous concept. You know, you might have an idea of a character or a scenario, and at that point, I'm, I wouldn't know how it'll work out, but I won't start writing the book until I know roughly what's going to be uh, revealed at the end. Um, and, and weirdly, uh, frequently, the, the last thing I write is the first thing you're going to read. Because once I've been all the way through and I know the story and I know the characters, I often write a, a, a prologue or a, a first chapter that um, I couldn't have written if I didn't already know how everything else played out. Yeah, that um, makes sense. It's a bit like I remember seeing that um, when Ed Software, when they made Doom and Quake in these games, the, the last level they would make would be the first level you encountered. And it was all often one of the best design level because they'd learned so much yes. over the course of it. That, and also it was the first thing that you were going to encounter. So it had such a, a, a it was such a good experience. And, and I think that's it's the same with a novel. Last week, um, the last thing I wrote in the new Ambrose Parry was a, a prologue, which Marissa and I had talked about for a long time, but I kept saying, I'll write this last, you know. Yeah, when going back right to the be, the beginning of books like Quite Ugly One Morning, I I read that twenty years ago, Chris, and it hit me like a steam train. I kind of thought, here's a guy writing crime fiction laced with sarcasm, mixed with comedy, and I I loved it. I still to this day it's one of the best books I've ever read, and I'd never read anything like it. And I wondered when you left journalism or when you were saying, Do you know what, I'm going to be a writer full time. Did you have to pull back a bit because your your style is full on when you were trying to pitch to publishers where they say, no, we like it, but can you pull it back? Or were they accepting of this, this great new thing? It was kind of the opposite of what you may assume in that um, Quite Ugly One Morning was actually my fourth attempt at a novel. And, and the, the three previous ones 
didn't get anywhere with publishers because I was writing what I thought publishers would want. Mm. I was actually reining in my natural instincts then. And then I decided, you know, I'm going to write something that's just for my own amusement. So it was tapping into my sense of humour and my um, my sensibilities, really. And at that point, that's when I, I got an agent and that's when there was interest from publishers and they didn't really ask me to tone down much at all. They were hugely excited by, I think, the fact that this was a very different type of crime writing. Do you think publishing was more open 20 years ago? All I seem to see are celebrity biographies and cookbooks these days. No, I mean, it's easy to get that impression because I think the way in which we encounter books and whether it's it's online a lot of the time, you know, if you're looking on the front page of Amazon or on a Kindle or something, that gets far more limited and sort of curated by algorithms. And mm. I think if you actually wander around any good bookshop at the moment, it will show that there is a, as much of a diversity as there always was. But what has changed is I think the marketing of the books and the publishing process has become more micromanaged than it was. Um, I think the, the publishers are always just, it's not so much they're, they're wary of, of a misstep. I think it's like they, they feel a responsibility to how they can get your book out to the most readers or who, um, how they can make sure it, it ends up in front of people who will respond to it. So I, I don't think it's true that they, they take less risks or that they're... They're, they're very homogenous in what they're publishing. There's a certain homogeneity creeps into things like cover design, if yeah. something has become very successful. But I think that's partly driven again by things like the Kindle, because in the past you could have um, a, a cover that had a, a, an elaborate title, like some of mine, and a, a more um, elliptical image. But now if, if that novel cover has to appear as a thumbnail on a device then that tiny wee thumbnail has to convey an awful lot at a glance. Mm. So not only does it have to have the title, which will, you're not going to be allowed to call your book one fine day in the middle of the night or all fun and games until somebody loses an eye. You're not going to get away with that these days, but also has to convey the genre or something of the tone. So I, I see why um, they end up doing things like, it's come to an end now, but for years it was like so many crime novels would have, including mine, would have a, a woman in a red coat or whatever, you know, and her back <laughs> to the camera. Um, it became a kind of visual shorthand, I suppose. Scott's Care. Helping to break the cycle of deprivation for Scots in London. Can I just talk about the number of books you've sold? You've sold over 2 million books. And I think my only question is, can you even imagine that? How do you get your head around that number? Um, it doesn't seem quite as impressive when you divide by the number of novels I've published. So it's easy to get my head around that number um, with that in mind. I mean, it, it's the, the thing that I feel more um, proud of rather than the, the number of books sold is, is just essentially the number of books written that are st- and, and still being in print. So still being able to do this quarter of a century after the first novel. And in fact, um, the very fact of, of Quite Ugly One Morning still being in print is a matter of great pride and some surprise to me because it felt very much of its time when I wrote it. It was very uh, geared towards the, the politics of the time. So there must have been something else in there that was a bit more universal if it's still in print um, 26 years later. It's interesting you say that because I think it does still stand up. And another book that I've just started reading again 
was Espadare Street by Ian Banks. Mm. And I find there's, you know, there's no mention of mobile phones in it. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, and it kind of reminds me of your books as well, because they're Scottish and they're real and they're cheeky. I couldn't work out when I was lying in bed the other night reading Espadare Street why it stands up so well, because it does seem quite timeless. It doesn't seem dated or aged at all. Do you think there's a secret formula to that? I think it's that um, human psychology and emotions don't change much. So if you get that right, um, the book is still going to resonate with people. And in the case of Espadere Street, you're maybe more um, hostage to seeming dated if you're writing about a a field of the arts or technology or something that has changed greatly. But I think um, the music business has changed a lot, but still people can relate to the the journey of, of, of people in a band together, the dynamic of that and the awkwardness of of, uh, of David Weir, you know, uh, Danny Weir rather, um, that people can relate to. You know, I, I always thought, found, found him a, a character who was as funny as he was kind of heartbreaking because you just felt for him all the time. Yes. I think that, that sympathy that you can generate for a character, that stays with people when um, other elements might otherwise seem dated. So I think it's, it's the ability to get the reader to connect with the character emotionally is the thing that keeps a book relevant. Is that is that a good piece of advice for people who want to write a book? Is it about the, the humanity and the empathy? I mean, you must have people saying, what is it I need to succeed in writing a novel? Yeah, I, th- I think that is. I mean, people are always often looking for what is the, a, a great hook, um, and obviously that, that will sell a book. But actually writing the book, you, you realise very quickly that, that it's not about the hook. The hook may help sell it and market it, but the writing of the story, the telling of the story is all about how do you make the reader feel for the characters, even if they're the, the less sympathetic characters on the surface. Do you ever worry your ideas will stop? I mean, you talk about obviously <laughs> getting out and getting away from the computer and walking and, and driving, but do you ever have moments of insecurity where you think, what if there's not another plot here? I don't, I mean, there's always a sort of insecurity of thinking, will the next book be engaging? But there's, it's an, I've learned to be patient. You know, there might not be a a plot idea immediately, um, but often that's because I've I've not given myself enough time to start. You know, um, it's not, maybe it's not been long enough since I finished the last book, but there's usually some idea coming along or, or, Often you'll get blindsided by an idea. I was I was trying to develop um, an idea recently, and I saw something just something my editor happened to say offhand, and it just kind of came at me sideways, and all of a sudden the, the wheels were turning. You know, so um, it's a bit of a cliche to say that you you kind of don't go looking for it; it comes and finds you. But it, there's an element of that being true. You know that. You, you shouldn't be focusing on it too directly. You you think about other things. I, I, I did an event, fascinating event years ago as part of the Edinburgh Film Festival with, um, there was a filmmaker and there was myself and there was a neuroscientist and he was talking about the how we, we were wrong to imagine that there is a, a sort of single spark of an idea actually what happens is we're having ideas and making connections all the time. But once we've kind of hit upon something that we're going to build, we will continue to filter and hold on to the ideas that suit that. And there's a kind of accretion process. 
Um, and that builds and builds. So it, actually, it's quite hard to remember the point where you had a spark that let all that, because really it wasn't one idea. You, you had so many ideas. It's just that you decided which of those ideas were, were going to be useful to you. So it, it's kind of, I think, that thinking about it as an accretion process is quite helpful. So you don't think that, you don't get worried that there isn't some bolt of lightning going to come along and ignite your next story. It's, it's like, you just wait and see what starts to build. The creative process, which is massively important to you, is it also important to be able to step away from it completely and have a complete break? I read something that you were talking about football being therapeutic. And it kind of <laughs> struck a nerve with me because I don't know if you read in the book, there's a book called Status Anxiety by Alan de Bottom. And he no, I've read some other Alan de Bottom work, but not that one. He writes about that. He writes about the power of anonymity within football crowds mm. and where you can just go and, and not worry about you know, the gas bill or the kids or the job or how the book is going to finish, you can just be there. Yeah, I think well, I think that's the the level of engagement you have. Everything is focused on what's happening in the pitch. And you, I mean, I sometimes bemoan the extent to which I can become emotionally invested in football. But the, the plus side is that for that period of time, you're not thinking about your day job. I'd say that that's, I've learned that, um, I took up guitar a few years ago and um, got my involvement with the Fun Loving Crime Writers. And that's another area where I'm able to completely detach from writing because it, there's obviously there's a kind of technical element to it and it's physical, but it's also, it's, it takes my, my head to somewhere completely different. That's so, a band. That's the band you play with other crime yeah. writers, isn't it? Yes, yes. Fun Loving Crime Writers, there's six of us. But playing the guitar, whether it's practicing for the band or even just learning to play a song or singing a song, um, I can't think about plot and character. So it's really therapeutic in that respect. And it is it's valuable to disengage from it because Mark Billingham, who is also in the Fun Loving Crime Writers, he once said that when you're writing a book, you're never not writing it. Yeah. That's once you've commenced it. It's true, it sneaks up on you all the time. It's popping into your head in the shower. You know, it's popping into your head when you're doing other things. Uh, and so there has to be times during the day where you can do something that prevents you thinking about it. I mean, I like Mark Billingham's books too. And I think there, there's a real darkness to some of his writing as well. So I, I think even from, you know, I know he hasn't committed these crimes, he's not investigating <laughs> these crimes, but there must be an importance to be able to 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 take that stuff out of your head it would be fascinating to work out what the process is how we as writers isolate some of the really dark things and extract something from them without almost like without getting too exposed you know it's like i'm picturing some kind of radioactive isotope which mm. you know we, we derive some kind of power from it without getting radiation sickness because mark talks about um the graham green quote about there's a, a shard of ice at the heart of every writer that lets you focus in on something dreadful. You know, it's a year of something dreadful happening and the party was like, oh yeah, but that would make a great story. You know, and there maybe is a part that is able to um, just detach yourself enough from the horror of it whilst yeah. exploring that horror or that, that darkness as it would affect your characters. Yeah. I mean, it's always funny because, um, I mean, I've known Mark for over 20 years and, and, my association with Mark 
or why I associate with, with Mark is always just laughter. You know, he's he was a stand-up comic. He's a very, very light-hearted individual, you know, but that, that goes for, I think most crime writers are, are they don't tend to be uh, gloomy individuals when you um, come up against them in real life. So mm. in fact, the band are, were all much more muchness in that respect. Where when the, the band are together, we're seldom talking about dark deeds, you know, or yeah. just making each other laugh. So much of your writing is set in Scotland, and I, I presume that helps you keep connected, you know, deeply connected to the authenticity of the plot. But you also sell very well in America, and I just wonder how how Americans react to that kind of writing. Have you met many of your readers over there? Not a huge amount. I'll get uh, the occasional email or I'll see reviews. And, and actually, I, I, our books haven't sold brilliantly in America. And I think partly that was that American publishers didn't quite know what to make of me. I think I was first published shortly after train spotting, And so they maybe thought this is sort of Scottish vernacular fiction without realising that what I was doing was, was really ostensibly far more mainstream and commercial when that it's crime fiction mm. um so I, I i think it's significant that the the book of mine that's done the best in america was black widow yeah because it was about things that were pretty universal it's about you know marrying a haste and whether you actually can trust a person if you've kind of you wanted to believe too much that they were right for you you know and you sort of missed the warning signs so i think um when you hit that sort of universality, you, you'll find readership anywhere. Um, but actually, America's a very insular market in terms of its crime fiction. There's not that many non-American writers who do particularly well over there. I think they like to read about themselves you know, far more than I think we, we often... Uh, part of the escapism of, of crime fiction is we want to read about somewhere slightly exotic to us. So obviously the American uh, crime fiction fits the bill, but also so does Scandi Noir or um, whatever else might, might come along. Yeah, it's interesting you say Scandi Noir because what sometimes frustrates me about our country, Chris, uh, being Scotland, is that we suffer a bit. We can't separate ourselves from this shortbread tin image of our country. And then it, the people, journalists were talking about Chris Brookmeyer, Tartan War. Yeah. And I yeah. couldn't, decide what I thought of that. I thought, oh, you know, is it is it tartan noir or would you, is it just noir noir? You know? I, I, well, in my case, it's not even noir. <laughs> I think I get why it's, it's a handy label, you know, to um, put so many, such a, a sort of plethora of different Scottish writing um, on, under that, that one umbrella. But um, in my case, I always resist the noir part of it because I think I write very ultimately optimistic kind of books, you know, they're, they're frequently escapist, but even if they're not escapist, they're pretty redemptive. You know, mm. I, I don't write horrible, existential, bleak noir novels. But just to come back to the the, the, the sort of shortbread tin thing, I think that's, it can be um, disappointing when you see that vision of Scotland because, for instance, crime fiction is one of the places where you see the sort of bounteous variety and, and multi-layeredness of, of Scottish society and Scottish culture. Scots Care. For Scots in London in need of support, financial, practical or emotional help. Can I just ask you something? There's something that just popped into my head. Does Jack Parlebane, does he age in your novels? Yeah, yeah. Um, 
I was when I brought him back after about eight years when I wrote um, Dead Girl Walking, and I, I wanted to kind of reboot him to some extent and, and make him more realistic. But I was very fortunate. I went back and checked, and I had never said what age he was, and so I was able to kind of work out roughly what the, the sort of upper and lower age ranges might be, um, given the time that had passed. And yeah. actually, when I've been writing about him. When I first wrote about him, I imagined someone who was older than me, um, but it was probably closer to my age when I was writing about him later on. Uh, certainly the, 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 the three books that I published most recently were definitely more about someone who, who was hitting middle age and all the, the sort of existential crises that go along with it. Yeah, so in, in some ways, when I read um, Ian Rankin, I kind of felt towards the end he had almost painted himself in a corner with, with Rebus because I kind of felt as if, I, I, I could keep on reading the rebuses, but he got too old and he had to retire and then it became a problem. Yeah, I think Ian was always um, very conscientious in terms of mapping rebus to the, the real world, but also that includes things like how long our policeman's allowed to work. Yeah. You know, it's a shame he didn't he just borrow our Willie's bucket, you know, that whatever allowed your Willie to stay the same age for 50 <laughs> odd When it came to the screen a few years back, it was James Nesbitt who played Jack Palabane. W- yeah. Were you happy with that? Yeah, I mean, there, there was about six or seven years in development and not getting anywhere. And it was only really when he committed to it that suddenly broadcasters were opening their wallets. And at the time, he was the probably the biggest actor in British television. So, um, you know, you can't really say better than that. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of people who kind of got upset on my behalf on the grounds that it was a, a not a Scottish actor playing the part. But I think... Um, you just have to be pragmatic when it comes to these things, whatever gets something made. When I go back, I kind of see him now in the books, and which I think is a good thing, and mm-hmm. because he's an edgy guy, and I think yeah. he played the part well. And it's, it's going back to Rebus, actually. It's when I, like, I think John Hanna's a superb actor, but I didn't mm-hmm. think he fitted as Rebus, because when I read the books now, I always see Ken Stop being Rebus. Yeah. I think with um, Quite Ugly One Morning, the tone was right. Yeah, James Nesbitt played the part with the, the right tone. Um, I always felt like John Hanna would have been perfect for Rebus about ten years later. You oh, know, do you I think, think so? The problem was that he was. I think he was slightly too young at the time for how people perceived Rebus even then. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't think it was that he was he was wrong for the part. I think you know John brings a certain he can bring a world weariness to the, a, a character. Anyway, I just think it was at that time, uh, it was just, he looked a wee bit too young, or maybe he was still associated with younger parts mm. more than he would be now. You also written sci-fi. Was that a, was that a tough gear change? No, it, it really wasn't. I mean, I, I think there's another area where I took a degree of inspiration from Ian Banks because Ian, having done both for so long, and meant that I wasn't thinking this was going to be a, a, a huge issue with my publishers because it was the same publisher as, as Ian and Ian M. Banks. And I've always been a fan of, of, of science fiction, so I felt quite comfortable in the genre. I kind of stumbled into it in as much as when I came up with the idea for Pandemonium, yeah. I realised this is going to be, a, this technically this is a science fiction story, but it, it mostly takes place in a very recognisable very modern um, sort of Scottish environment with, with very down-to-earth characters. But then something like Bedlam, that gets far more kind of proper sci-fi and then Places in the Darkness is a space station. But it was it didn't feel like much of a jump because 
Places in the Darkness is essentially conceived as a, a crime story. You know, it was, it was the idea was my, my editor said, "Could you write a crime story set in space?" You know, that was the starting point. Bedlam. I mean, Bedlam got changed, got turned into an actual game. Did that come as a surprise to you? Was that out of the blue, or was that always in development when you? No, were... it actually started um, as the the game developers came to me first. Coincidentally, because they had, they'd read a few of my books, and most recently they'd read Pandemonium, and they'd picked up on all the the gaming references in Pandemonium, and they said, "Would I be interested in working with them to develop a first person shooter?" And so we had a lot of chat. We had a real meeting of the minds because we'd all grown up with with video games, and then we'd watched how the games had evolved. So I had this idea: could I come up with a concept that allowed us to show how games had evolved and how our relationships with games had evolved? rather than just come up with a a generic sci-fi shooter. Mm. And I came up with this idea and I realised actually the best way to develop this is to go write it as a novel first. So I did that while they were trying to get the project off the ground, but um, the book came out uh, and suddenly it was a lot easier for them to get funding for the game because there was a book, you know, it kind of added legitimacy. So the, the two things were always developed in tandem and I wrote all of the... Uh, the dialogue in the game and I wrote a lot of the, the sort of outline stuff once we decided what parts of the book we could realistically make into a game for that budget. Uh, I came up with some of the concepts for how certain goals would be uh, mapped out so that it all fitted with the story and um, in fact I, I'm, I'm voicing some of the characters in the game as well and uh, although they put all sorts of weird effects on so you'd never know it was me and That's my brilliant. son did all of the, there's a, a section in the game where you encounter all these obnoxious American teenage gamers and he came up with all the voices for that. Because not only would he, could he do, uh, it wasn't just one accent, he would do all these like Southern accents or West Coast accents or East Coast accents. I'd love to do that, Chris, that'd be great. I'd, yeah, I would do that for nothing just to be in a video game. I think that sounds <laughs> an awful lot of fun. It was, because also we had um, uh, Robert Florence and Kirsty Strain uh, doing the principal parts and also doing other small parts because they've got such um, versatile voice talents. You know, they're best known for Burniston. Um, So, although Robert Florence has been involved in kind of games journalism for a long, long time, so they were, like, just perfect for the roles. You you have achieved so much over the last you know, 25 years. Do you have any particular ambitions left? I mean, you're still a relatively young man. Uh, yeah, As are we both? I, yeah, I'm always kind of keen to sort of tick off what I haven't done so far. I'd, I'd like to see um, something of my, my work on the big screen. There's a pandemonium movie has been in development for a while and is getting is edging closer to happening. Uh, and, and Black Widow similarly has been developed. And, and Marissa and I have been we've been turning our hand to screenwriting to adapt the cut in in uh, in conjunction with a, a, a production company in Glasgow. So yeah, I'd like to see more of my stuff um, appear on big and small screen. That's my next area of ambition. Chris, thank you very much for joining us today on the Scots Care Podcast. It's it's been a delight to speak to you. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Scots Care, supporting London Scots with financial grants, welfare advice, counselling, sheltered housing, jobs coaching and family support.